Well, today, I want to welcome you to uh, our church. Uh, we're going to begin a brand new series here, here today. Uh, we've been in the series uh, called um, Outrageous Love for the last six weeks. Well, today, we're going to be, kick off something brand new. Uh, the series is called Jesus Isn't Enough. Jesus Isn't Enough. You may be wondering what that's all about. Well, part of this series, it was really uh, birthed out, out of a blog that, uh, part, partly out of a blog that Natalie, my daughter Natalie, is 18, she wrote recently, and, and it also came about, uh, sparked by various conversations I've had with a number of you uh, as to uh, kind of where, where are you at? What, you know, how's your relationship with God? And I wanted to just uh, read part of Natalie's blog to you. Some of you might have read it on Facebook, but I want to read it to you kind of just to set the stage for where we're going to go in this series, all right? So let me, just, let me just pray. I mean, let me just read this to you. And here's what she wrote. She wrote, today's culture is a culture that is based off of a constant seeking of acceptance and approval from others. And when you become so wrapped up in this culture of constant seeking and you can't seem to find the approval that you were so desperately hoping for, you get into the unhealthy habit of comparing yourself to others and you begin to pick yourself apart. Every part of you that is different from the standards that society has set for what is acceptable turns into insecurity. You become embarrassed of who you are on the inside. You become ashamed of the things that, uh, that make you unique and afraid to stray from the norm. The expectations you have for yourself get bigger and bigger while you just feel like you're getting smaller and smaller. You begin to make changes in your appearance, morals, and lifestyle in attempts to gain acceptance from others and bury your feelings of brokenness, worthlessness, and insufficiency. And in the end of it all, uh, you lose sight of who you are and who you were created to be. No matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what you believe, no matter where you've come from or what you've been through, know this, you are chosen, you are loved, and you are enough. Not because you have tried hard, not because you have loved hard, not because you wear the nicest clothes and drive the sickest cars. I think the sickest car means a nice car. Um, <laughs> not because you're in a committed relationship, not because others say that you're enough, and certainly not because you are really good at masking your flaws and insecurities. You are enough because you are a child of God who has been pursued from the very beginning. You are enough because his grace has saved you and it covers you. You are enough because the creator of the heavens and the earth, the king of kings, the God who knows the exact number of stars in the sky and the God who gives you breath each day has deemed you as worthy to be in his family. Your identity doesn't come from necessarily from who you are, but whose you are. And you are God's. You are the chosen son or daughter of God. Knowing and understanding this can bring so much freedom and peace. You can finally feel relieved of the burden that comes when you can't seem to meet society's expectations and standards. You can be released from all the doubt and shame that you have felt in the past. You can be renewed and restored through your new identity in Christ. That's my daughter. And, um, you know what's, she's embarrassed that I was reading that today, but um, what's remarkable to me uh, about Natalie's blog is that she correctly identified this force, if you want to call it that, this force that, that is woven into the DNA of our society, and of every society, a force that controls us, that sways us, that influences us, and, and that force is called culture. It is our culture. Um, and our culture lays out these unspoken, 
unwritten sets of standards by which we are supposed to live our lives. Uh, our culture dictates what we need to do in order to be happy and fulfilled and satisfied and popular and beautiful and successful. And there isn't one of us who isn't touched or affected by the messages that the culture screams at us on a daily basis, permeates every aspect of our lives. And basically, culture has given us what I'd call the enough bar. It is the enough bar, the bar of enough. The bar of enough says if you have A, B, and C, and X, Y, and Z, then you have enough. You have arrived. You're the A-lister. You are one of the haves. And if you don't have these things, if you don't have A, B, and C, and X, Y, and Z, then you are nothing. You are a have-not. You don't measure up. You are insufficient. You are mediocre. You are a failure. That's what our culture says to us. And we even see the enough bar at play in the lives of Christ followers. And, and the message that comes through loud and clear to us is, hey, Christian, Jesus is not enough. God is not enough. You need these other things. You need something else. You need a love life. You need a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You need to be married and have a husband or a wife. You need to have children. You need to have a family. You need to have a successful career. You need to live in the American dream, a beautiful house. You need to drive a sick car. You need to be smart and play sports and have tons of friends, a fat bank account. And if you have all these things, even a hot body, then Jesus will be enough. Then you will have enough. And my guess is most of us would say, Jesus is enough. Yeah, Jesus is enough. But I wonder sometimes in our heart of hearts whether we really believe that whether we really believe that he is enough or whether or not we believe what the culture tells us, that we're falling short and that we need something else. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to address this clash between culture and faith and unpack this idea that Jesus isn't enough. And of course, you know, our premise is that Jesus is enough. We believe that he is enough. And anyways, our hope is that as you come and discover that Jesus is enough for you, then, and that he is all you need, that, then maybe you'll break out and live that life that all out for Christ that God created you to live. That's our hope. And today I want to begin by showing you a story that you might be familiar with, but hopefully it will, you'll get some new insight and hopefully it will speak to you in a different kind of a way. So if you brought your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 32, Exodus 32. You can also look at your Baywatch inside. We have notes, verses are listed there for you. And, and also you can uh, download our SBCC app. Open up the SBCC app. You can get it from the Play Store, the Apple Store. And just click on Weekend Services and, and all the notes will, be, will show up there for you. Um, and you can just follow us along. You know, some years ago, Cheryl and I had the opportunity, my wife Cheryl and I had the opportunity to visit the Simon Wiesenthal Museum here in Los Angeles. Now, if you've never been to the Simon Wiesenthal Museum, I highly recommend it. It is really, it was very enlightening, very sobering, because it kind of chronicles the events of the Holocaust, uh, when six million Jews were systematically rounded up and exterminated during World War II by the Nazis at places like Dachau and Ravensbrück and Auschwitz. Uh, you might have seen some of the photos, and uh, these are just some of the more mild ones. And even though the Holocaust is one of the most well-documented historical events, it is well-documented, there are those who deny that the Holocaust ever took place. 
They deny that it took place. We call them Holocaust deniers. According to a recent survey that was conducted by the Jewish uh, Anti-Defamation League, the JADL, <clears throat> two-thirds of the world's population do not even know about the Holocaust. And most of the people they interviewed said they didn't believe it, it really happened. They don't believe it really happened. <clears throat> when Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who is the president of Iran, spoke on television, gave a speech on television, he declared that the Holocaust was a myth. This was several years ago. Not long after that, an English Catholic bishop named Richard Williamson declared that the Holocaust didn't happen. A few years ago, the vice chancellor of one of Egypt's political parties told the Washington Post that the Holocaust was a fabrication and it was a lie. So there are a lot of people who don't believe that the Holocaust occurred, even though there's historical evidence. There are photographs. There are, there, there are actually people who are still alive today who experienced the Holocaust, who, who were at Auschwitz. There's the physical evidence of the, the concentration camps as well. You can go and see the, the crematoriums where the people were cremated alive, burned alive, and where they were, were gassed in these gas chambers. And, and you can hear the, read the testimonies of the Nazis who were convicted of war crimes. And all that is, is right there for you to see. Yet people don't believe that the Holocaust really happened. And if you think that's unbelievable... Think about the fact that there are conspiracy theorists today who don't believe that passengers pla passenger planes crashed in the World Trade Center on 9-11. I, mean, I don't know what they think happened, but there are people who will say, look at this and say, no, that really didn't happen. It's unbelievable. The story I want to show you today, um, in the story I want to show you today, the Jews were eyewitnesses, hands down, to the greatest human spectacle that anyone had ever laid their eyes on. They, it was unbelievable. They witnessed the glory of God. It was amazing. They witnessed the glory of God. They saw God's glory with their very own eyes, and they even heard it. And somehow, even then, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. So we're going to look at Exodus chapter 32, but the story actually begins in Exodus chapter 14, so look at Exodus chapter 14. Keep your finger in Exodus 32. We'll get to that in just a minute. But in Exodus 14, you know, you know the story of the Jews. They, they, were, they were held in, captive, in captivity in, in Egypt for 400 years. And finally God sends them an emancipator, someone to free them from, from slavery in Egypt, and that was Moses. So Moses goes to Egypt, and he finally gets Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let his people go. And they leave Egypt maybe a million of them, maybe two million of them, and, and the Egyptians, he decides, he has a change of heart, he wants them back, and so they're in hot pursuit. And they run right straight into a brick wall called the Red Sea. Take a look at Exodus 14, verse 10, and, and those verses, by the way, are not listed on your notes in your Baywatch, but they are on your app, and they're, they're up here, of course. Exodus 14, 10 says, and when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So they escaped Egypt and they ran straight into this wall called the Red Sea. And they were trapped and they had nowhere to go and they were terrified of what would happen next. They would all be slaughtered because their backs were up against the wall. They had nowhere to go. And then they saw God in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Exodus 14 verse 19, nine verses later it says, and then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. 
And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So God's glory shows up, and they see him in a cloud. And that cloud comes between them and the Egyptians to protect them. And his glory was there at night, and it lit up the night sky. And then, as we know, God parted the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea so that the Jews could escape to the other side, and they went to the other side, and God demonstrated his great power. Take a look at verse 31 in Exodus 14. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They saw his great power with their very own eyes. And after the Jews made it to the other side, they saw God's power and glory once again when he gave them food to eat, manna from heaven. He gave them water to drink in the desert. They saw his glory in the desert, Exodus 16. If you flip over two chapters, Exodus 16, verse 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Aaron was, was the priest, the high priest of, of the Jews. He's... As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And there it was again. They were out in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, and they saw the glory of God. And then all the people, you know, we, we know that they wandered in the desert for 40 years, but they all gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. And a couple weeks ago, I showed you a picture of the actual Mount Sinai there in, in, in uh, Egypt. But they gathered at the base of Mount Sinai to meet the Lord. Take a look at Exodus 19. You flip over three more chapters. Exodus 19, verse 17. Starting in 17, it says, And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, they heard the trumpet call of God. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. You see, the people saw the glory of God. They heard it. They felt it. They saw it on the glory. They saw it on the mountain as God came down upon that mountain. I would imagine it might have looked something like this. Somebody came up with this image, almost like Mount Mordor. And the Lord of the Rings, I mean, there's, the, there's this mountain and there's the glory of God. The fire and the smoke and the clouds. Later, Moses went up on that mountain and that's where God gave him all the laws that he wanted, by which he wanted the Jews to live. And remember, we talked about that in the Outrageous Love series. How many laws did he give them? 613. Remember, 613 laws. And Moses was up there on that mountain for 40 days and nights. Exodus chapter 20, flip over five more chapters. It says in verse 15, and then Moses went up on the mountain. This is kind of key. He went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai and, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. In the sight of the people of Israel, they could see it. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. No more, no less, 40 days and 40 nights. And once again, the people saw the glory of God. It covered Mount Sinai. 
God spoke to Moses and what God said to Moses is recorded for us in the next few chapters, chapter 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, and that brings us to 32. And that's where we're going to be today, right? That brings us to 32. Take a look at Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1, and here's what it says. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, how long was he up there? 40 days and 40 nights. When he delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives. Notice it doesn't say, and in your husbands too. They, take off the gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters. Oh, the sons had them. And, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of the gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This was unbelievable. This was unbelievable. The Jews who saw the glory of God now created an idol. It was as if they were like Holocaust deniers. No, it didn't really happen. Or 9-11 deniers. Oh, no, we didn't really see the glory of God. It was, it was unbelievable. After all they experienced, after all they saw with their very own eyes and heard with their very own ears and felt when that mountain trembled, and then this. Because Moses didn't come back down from the mountain right away, in their opinion. They took it upon themselves to create their own God by collecting all the gold and gold jewelry that they could get their hands on. They melted it down and fashioned it into a golden calf. In verse 4, will you underline made a golden calf? This is key. We're going to come back to this in a second. But underline made, they made a golden calf. Now here's a photo from the scene as it was depicted in the movie The, the Ten Commandments star, starring Charlton Heston. And they created this golden, they made this golden calf. And they put it on this platform and they went around and they, and they worshipped it. Why a golden calf? Why not a golden dog or a golden cat or a golden monkey uh, or a golden horse? Why a golden calf? Well, let me give you a little background. This is really interesting. Remember where the Jews came from. Well, they came from Egypt. They, they had been captive in Egypt for 400 years. Now, before they ever stepped foot in Egypt, because they weren't always there, they were in, they were in Israel. But before they stepped foot in years before they stepped foot in Egypt, the kings of Egypt dis introduced into their religious system the worship of bulls. They introduced into the religious system the worship of bulls, specifically the worship of a bull named Apis. That's what they called him. This is a bronze figure of, of Apis that dates back to 600 B.C. This one is on display in the British Museum in London. And they said, okay, people, we're going to worship the bull because he is God. And it wasn't just one bull. 
but it was three bulls. This was part of their religious system. So the Egyptian culture was distinctive because of bull worship. Now guess what? The Jews lived in Egypt for 400 years, and they were influenced by Egyptian culture. It was all around them. Everybody, all their classmates, all their friends, all the people they work with, they worshiped the bull, Apis. I get this. For all intents and purposes, the Jews were not Jews, but they were Egyptians because they lived in Egypt. It's kind of like this. You know, I get this because my grandparents came from Japan in the early 1900s. They came from Japan, spoke only Japanese. Then my parents were born here in America. And then I was born in Texas. That's why I like country music. Um, But I was born in Texas. I'm as American as apple pie. I am third generation, three generations removed from my grandparents. For the most part, Japanese culture is foreign to me. Now, I get some of it because I'm still third generation. I, got a little, I can speak a little, bit of, a little bit of Nihongo, a little bit of Japanese. I mean, but my daughters, they're fourth generation, and the Japanese culture is really foreign to them. It is really foreign to them. I can speak, of, I, can, I know a little bit of Japanese. They can, the only Japanese words they know, teriyaki, sushi, and karaoke, and they can't even say karaoke correctly. They say karaoke. Like the rest of you do, right? But it's, I get it. When, you, when you're part of this culture, you become, this is, you become of who, what the culture is. And the Jews were the same way. And they weren't, they weren't there for just three generations like me. They were there for if 400 years. That, depending on how many years you compute to be in, in one generation, that could have been 12 to 14 generations I mean, 14 generations of, of Jews in Egypt, and you're pretty much an Egyptian. So for 400 years, they were immersed in Egyptian culture. And so when they decided to make a god, it was a no-brainer. They didn't have to think about it. They, they made a golden calf like Apis. Now, take a look at this. This is really fascinating. When Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he, he, was, he confronted Aaron. He was so angry when he saw this. They were worshiping Apis, or not Apis, but this golden calf. He, he was furious. He was furious at, at Aaron because Aaron was the one who instigated the, the creation of, the, of this golden calf. In Exodus 32, verse 21, if you want to take a look at it, it says, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Why, what did they do to you that you would do this to them? That you would lead them astray, lead them down this path? And here's what Aaron said. Verse 23, for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) I just got the gold and just put it in the fire and voila, there was a calf. Poof, there was a calf, right? But we know that's not what really happened. Aaron lied. Remember verse 4 said, I had you underline it. They made a golden calf. They made it. He knew exactly what he was doing. It didn't magically appear, poof, out of the fire. They made it. Years ago, so fascinating, isn't it? I love this. I love scripture when you take it apart. and You're like, whoa, I didn't realize that. You know, years ago, I was... um, 
one of the volunteer leaders in a high school ministry. And it was really the, the, the first significant ministry that I, ever had, that I had volunteered with. It was uh, just such a great experience. And we had a lot of kids come to know Jesus. And, and every summer, every summer, we would take a bunch of these kids to a, a retreat in the Santa Cruz Mountains called Mount Hermon. We would take them to Mount Hermon. And at the, it was a week-long camp. And at the end of the camp, it was, it was amazing. Everyone was so emotional. Every, all the kids would cry. And they would cry and they would be so sad because they didn't want to go home. They didn't want to go down the mountain uh, because they had experienced the touch of God. And as they said to me, they said, we're, we're on a spiritual high. And it's kind, of, it's kind of like that. You know, when you're, around, when you're around believers for seven days and you worship every day and you, you hear the study the word of God every day, you're kind of on this high. And, and they, they knew exactly what was coming. They knew that when they went down that mountain, they knew that they were afraid of this, the, the, those feelings, that spiritual high would evaporate and, and then they would crash. They would experience this crash. And it happened every year. It happened every year. So every year we would try to prepare them as to what was coming, uh, but, but it didn't seem to help. And every year we would lose kids because they would come down and say, and they would, they would actually stop going to church, and they would actually stop following Christ because they would say to us, we'd follow up and say, hey, how's it going? They go, oh, I don't go to church anymore. Why not? Well, I don't feel God anymore. You don't feel him. It's not about a feeling, right? Well, I don't feel it anymore. It's, it's the feeling is gone. You know, this feeling that they had at the retreat, it's all gone. So they stopped walking with God. And no matter how many times we said it, they didn't get it. That your faith is not based on your feelings. Your faith is not based on some kind of an emotional experience. Just like your relationship with your spouse. If your relationship with your spouse was based on feelings, then your relationship with your spouse would not last very long. Cheryl and I would have left each other a long time ago, mutually, like, because your feelings change. It goes up and down. Marriage is based on a commitment, right? You stay committed to one another. You know, when you first get married, it's kind of like, oh, I'm so, so in love, like, you. oh, it's just, right? You, it's wonderful, right? It, it, it really is. And, and we can, it's called a marriage high. You can't get enough of each other. You can't get enough of each other. And you can always tell a newlywed um, at, at our church because they're walking through the doors, man, they're just like, oh, we just love each other. Oh, hey, let me give you a welcome to church. Oh, no, no, I got my, you know, I, I, they don't want to hug anybody because they're just so lovey-dovey. They can't get their paws off each other. And they come here and they sit together and they're just like, oh. And it's like, it's kind of like embarrassing because I see it like, okay, that's, <laughs> stop, please. They hold hands and they worship and they lift their hands together. It's, that's kind of cool. All right? And then you can tell. You can always tell the couples who have been married a long time. Right? Because they don't walk in together. And if they walk in together, the guy's always ahead of the lady. The, the man's always ahead of his wife. And then they don't sit together. This is crazy. They don't sit together. You know, we got a bunch of old Hawaiian couples in our church. who attend. I shouldn't call them old because now I'm in that category too. But... Um, so I'll rephrase it. We got a bunch of Hawaiian couples who have been married for a long, long time. And they come to this church, and, I, and they're here today, and I saw them. And the reason why you can, you know that, because all, the, all the, the men folk, they sit together. And all the women folk, the wahinis, they all sit together. In fact, the, the women folk, they sit right there, right in the back. They all sit together. All the married wives sit together. And all the married guys, they sit together. I think they're over there. 
I think I, I saw them back there early this morning. It's so funny, like, you don't even sit together anymore? Like, why? But yet, I can tell you, you know what I can tell you about, about their marriages? It's rock solid. They have rock solid marriages. You know why? Because it's a commitment to them. Marriage is a commitment. And, it, and it's fantastic. Because their marriage isn't based on feelings. It's based on a commitment. You know, when I read this story, the Jews making the golden calf, after all they had experienced, I couldn't help but think that they just got to this place where at the base of the mountain where they weren't feeling it. You know, like they're not feeling God. I mean, like, where's Moses? We haven't seen God. He's, he's up there, but we haven't seen him. I mean, I don't, I'm not, you know, excited. I don't have this spiritual high. And they felt distant from him. And so they needed an experience. They wanted to experience God again. So they made a golden calf. And the reason why I believe they were looking for an experience is because of what it says right here in Exodus 32, verse 6. We just read it, but let me read it to you one more time. It says here, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And this is the clincher right here. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, here's this golden calf, and now, wow, they partied, right? They partied. And that word play, will you circle the word play? The word play has a sexual connotation to it in the Hebrew. The original language is a sexual connotation to it. And the same word is found in Genesis 26, verse 8. We'll put that up here for you. Let me read Genesis 26, 8. It says, It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife. Rebekah circled the word caressing. That word caressing is exactly the same word as the word play. And so you can see the connection there. There's, there's the word connect, it's the same word, and it suggests, and thus it suggests, the word play suggests that the Jews' worship of the golden calf was, was erotic, that it was something sexual about it, that it was sexually suggestive. And we know about cult prostitution that occurred back then. Basically, they were seeking an experience, a spiritual experience or a feeling. They weren't content to simply wait on the Lord and wait for him to show up, wait for Moses to return. They were looking for an instant spiritual gratification. And you think about it, the crowds that followed Jesus were exactly the same way. They were the same way. Remember how, what they said to Jesus and what they wanted from him? Luke 11, verse 16. It says, others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Imagine, Jesus walks into this room and he comes up here and, we, and we're gonna, you're going to go up and say to him, or I'm going to go up and say to him, can you, can you do a miracle for us? Are you kidding Right? If Jesus was here, would you, would you have the audacity to say that to him? John 4, 48. And so Jesus said to them, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What a group. Right? Unless I do some miracles, you will not believe. Signs and wonders. They, they were just looking for an experience. They just wanted something. It wasn't simply, it wasn't enough simply to believe in Jesus, they needed a sign. They sought an experience. They wanted to see signs and wonders. They wanted that feeling. And people are like that even today. They're, they're believers who are like that today. Years ago, 
a pastor friend of mine said to me, I want God to move my church. Well, I, I can, I want that too, right? We all want, he says, I want God to move in my church. And so that was his reason for becoming an ardent follower of a number of leaders in the Signs and Wonders movement. The Signs and Wonders movement. And so he became a follower that would go to all these Signs and Wonders events, <clears throat> and he decided to introduce it to his church because he thought if he could introduce Signs and Wonders into his church, if, he can get, if they can perform miracles in their church, then, they, then God would move in his church. And I actually counseled him against taking his church down that road because I believe it was uh, an error. And sure enough, he, he introduced it to his church and cra crazy things started happening in his church. And I, know I've, uh, I know people who attended some of those gatherings. I know somebody who was on staff there. And, and I would hear things like people would start falling into these trances and they would start falling on the ground and you know, making all kinds of strange noises. And the services would go sometimes till four or five o'clock in the morning and uh, it, it became very chaotic and it was very emotional. And, and I would, all, heard all kinds of crazy things. I heard that one of the pastors claimed that he went to heaven and back. He says, I went to the third heaven. I came back and I thought, well, if you went to heaven, why would you want to come back? Right? If I go to heaven, if I die, whatever you do, don't ever. And they, they were praying for people to be raised from the dead. And I, I, I told you this before. If I die, do not pray that I come back. Right? <laughs> I, if I come back, if you pray and get me come back, I will be so mad at you. <laughs> right? I want to stay in heaven. Right? You know, I can, leave me there. But, um, and tons of really good-hearted, well-intentioned people wanting to be healed, wanting a touch from God, flocked to his church. And my impression in speaking with many who've been involved in this movement over the years is that they just want more of God. And that's a good thing, right? We all want more of God. We should all want more of God in our lives. But they wanted to experience God. And there's a sense, there's a sense in which wanting more of God is good and, and we should all want that. But we don't get more of God by, by seeking an experience. That's not how you get more of God. You get more of God by, by seeking and him, him in his word, by knowing and studying his word. This is his word to us. And this is how we get more of God. And you, you, you get more of God by praying and by worshiping him by surrendering your life to him and by serving him. That's how, not by seeking some kind of an emotional experience. Whenever your relationship with God is based on a feeling, then he will never be enough. Never be enough. You'll always be left wanting. And then when you don't feel him, that's the opportunity Satan's looking for, to step right in and to start speaking lies to you and say, see, there's no God. You can't feel him. He's gone. There's no God. And he steps right in and snatches you away. So write this one down. My relationship with God must never be based on feelings. Never be based on emotion. Never be based on an experience. Never. You know, one of my favorite Bible teachers is David Platt. Um, and he wrote a book called Radical. Now, if you've never read Radical, you've got to read that book. That book changed my life. That's an amazing book right? Read the Bible and read Radical. Radical is amazing. It's radical is radical. And in his book, Radical, he tells a story of being invited to meet with a group of about 20 leaders 
it, who are part of the underground church movement in a, in a country somewhere in East Asia. And they had to meet secretly because Christianity is against the law in that country. And if they were found out meeting together, studying the Bible, then that they would be executed. So according to Platt, they, they got to keep, flew to this country. Uh, they huddled in a small room. All of the participants would have to arrive at different times so as not to, to alert the authorities that something was going on. They would all arrive at different times. They all gathered together. And he said they, they gathered in a small room. They sat shoulder to shoulder on the floor or on small stools. And imagine it looked like this because this is an actual picture of an underground church in this country. And they began to, so when he, he arrived, they began to share stories with him about what God was doing in their churches. And first a woman spoke up and she said, quote, some of the, mem- some of the members in my church were recently confronted by the government they threatened their families, saying that if they did not stop gathering to study the Bible, they were going to lose everything they had. She asked for prayer, saying, quote, I need to know how to lead my church to follow Christ, even when it costs them everything. You know, what would you do if somebody in your small group came and says, they're telling me to stop reading the Bible? And if I don't, I, I'm going to lose everything. What do I do? And then... A man spoke up, David Platt said a man spoke up, and he, he said, quote, some of the people in my church have been pulled away by a cult, a cult, he said, which is known for kidnapping believers and taking them to these isolated lo- locations and torturing them and even cutting their tongues off. And this man said, I am hurting, he said, and I need God's grace to lead my church through these attacks. And they were all done. Platt said he looked around the room and he says, everybody was crying. He says, everybody was crying. And then they asked him if he would come back the next day and just teach them the Bible. Will you just teach us the Bible? And he says, I'll come back and I'll teach you the Bible. So they gathered together the next day at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And they went all day and he taught them late into the night. And when they were done, they said, would you come back tomorrow and teach us some more? He said, sure, I'll come back tomorrow. 2 o'clock, okay? He says, no, we want to start earlier so we can study more Bible. So he, came, he got there early in the morning. And they started arriving, and he taught them late again, again, late into the night. He did this for two weeks straight, every single day. They just gathered together, and all they did was they studied the Bible. They took him, you know, two weeks. They took him, David Platt took him through the entire Bible, and by the, end of, by the time the study was done, 60 people had come. And they were crammed, all crammed inside this little room with one little light bulb hanging from the middle of the ceiling. That was all the light they had. One little light bulb. They came to church, their church, even though it didn't have any air conditioning, didn't have any carpeting, didn't have comfortable seats to sit in, no sound system, no lights, no projectors, no handouts, no worship team, no signs and wonders, just the word of God. This was all. This was all they had. This was all they wanted. This was enough. This was enough. Let me ask you something. Would you come to church if we didn't have all the bells and whistles? I mean, would you come to church if we didn't have heater when it was cold and air conditioning when it was hot? Would you come to, air, come to church if we didn't have seats to sit in? Would you come to church without the 21st century comforts? Would you come to church? Would you come to South Bay Community Church to sit for hours just to study the Word of God because it is the Word of God. Would this be enough for you? 
Or would you say, oh, that's so boring. I'll pass. David Platt wanted to know the answers to those questions for his own church in Birmingham, Alabama. He has a big church. So he decided to test his church, and he invited his church on one Friday evening. Will you, will you, I, want you to, I want to invite you to a Bible study at our church on Friday evening. And we're going to start at 6 o'clock, I mean, 6 o'clock, right around dinner time. We're going to go till midnight. We're going to study the Bible for six hours straight. And he wondered if anyone would come. And he said, we're going to call it Secret Church, like they do in that country back in East Asia. And they did it, and he, he was shocked. He couldn't believe it. So many people came, they had to turn people away. And they studied the Bible for six hours straight. They've been doing this since 2006, and they've been doing it ever since. Twice a year, they have Secret Church, and a, and a th- thousand people come. They gather just to pack it out to, to, to study the Bible. A few years ago, they decided to invite other churches to participate by video simulcast. And last year, 60,000 people all over the world participated in, in Secret Church. A few years ago, we decided to, to try it out, and so we did. And it was great. We, we did it. Uh, and uh, 250 people showed up. And so we decided to do it again this year. So on Friday, April 20th, and Friday, April the 27th, Secret Church is coming to Southern California. Actually, it's coming to South Bay Community Church. And so far, I looked at the website, we're the only church in either Orange or L.A. counties that has signed up to do Secret Church here in, in Southern California. And we decided, rather than to do it all in one night from 6 p.m. to midnight, we're going to break it up in two nights. We'll do it on two Fridays from 7 to 10. We'll go from 7 to 10, so three hours on the first Friday, April 20th, and three hours on the second Friday, April 27th, because I know a bunch of you are sleepyheads, and you can't stay up past 9 o'clock. So we're going to do it on two different nights, and all we're going to do is study the Bible, and David Platt's going to teach it, and he's gonna, his topic this year, you're going to love this one, he's going to study, we're going to study the cults and counterfeit gospels. It's kind of what I, what I just talked about, we're going to... and. I'm sure he's going to talk about some of the false teachings and false doctrines that are, being, that are being taught out there. And so I urge you not to miss it. When we get closer, we will tell, be telling you more about it. We will, we'll, we'll need for you to sign up because we need to order some materials and prepare some materials for you, all the handouts. And again, like I said, the last time we did this, about 250 people showed up. And, and this time, I'm hoping that so many of you will want to come to Secret Church that we have to turn people away. But we will not turn anybody away. Even if I have, Mark, even if I have to sit on your lap, we're, gonna, we're not going to turn people away, right? So would you, would you come to study God's word for three hours each night simply because it was God's word? Is this enough for you? I hope it is. If you were in prison and this was all you had, would this be enough for you? If you were all alone in this world, Maybe you're a widow. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe your kids have all moved out. Maybe you moved here from another city and you are all alone. Would the word of God be enough for you? I hope it would be. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God has exalted his name, the name above all names, and he has exalted his word. There is nothing like the Word of God. 
You see, our relationship with God is not based on feeling. It is based on the truth of the word of God. You can write that one down. It is based on the truth of the word of God. And if you are firmly grounded and rooted in his word, then God will always be enough. Always be enough for you. You will never lack anything because it's all right here. You know, the other day I read something that one of my Facebook friends, Jill Rogers, posted. I, I knew Jill way back when. And I didn't realize until I read this all that she was going through in her life. And so I, I want to read what she posted. She posted, I wonder how I keep getting out of bed when life is difficult. Like three months of living in a hospital because Ian was too fragile to go home. Or three months of living quarantined after transplant. More than three months of recovery from brain surgery. Three months to recover from pneumonia. That's over 12 difficult months doing, during two very intense years. And after 10 years of living with degenerative disease already, I wonder how do I keep getting up and out of bed? That's what she posted. Now here's the backstory to her blog. When Jill and Sandy Rogers' youngest son, Micah, was born um, and was just a month shy of his second birthday, he was diagnosed with a rare form of muscular dystrophy. The next month, his big brother, Ian, was also diagnosed with this rare form of muscular dystrophy called uh, Fukuyama muscular dystrophy, for which there is no cure It is a degenerative disease, it is a progressive disease, and the prognosis is unknown, except that children who get this disease are not able to walk, they're not able to talk, they have no cognitive um, uh, abilities, their vision becomes impaired, and their lifespan is compromised. These two boys, their two sons, were diagnosed with this disease when they were very little. Here's a recent photo of Ian on the right and Micah on the left. In June 2015, when the family were at a church camp in Northern California, I believe it was Mount Hermon, the same one that that I went to. In fact, Matt Sekijima, who helped lead worship here this morning, said he knows Ian because he was was part of the high school group up there at Mount Hermon. Um, While they were at that camp, Ian on the right started having difficulty breathing. And so after the camp was done, they took him to, uh, to a children's hospital in San Francisco, and it was determined after a battery of tests that, that his heart was failing. He needed a heart transplant. Well, the good news is about 18 months ago, Ian got his heart transplant, and now Micah is waiting to get his. That's the backstory. And so do you know how it is that she can get out of bed every single day? How does she get out of bed every single day? God. It's God. He's the only way she can do this. Here's something else that Jill posted recently. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. She took a picture of her Bible page in Psalm 103, where that verse comes from. wrote all over it, wrote this note. Thank you for being very present in our darkest days and celebrating every blessing with us. Thank you for every card, gift, thought, meal, mile, email, cookie, and act of trust and prayer. See, 
God isn't an emotion to them. He isn't a feeling. He isn't an experience. He is God to them because of what the word of God says he is. He is Lord. He is their father. He is their redeemer. He is the lifter of their head. He is their shield. He is their portion. He is their rock. He is their fortress. He is the lover of their souls. He is the alpha and the omega. He is everything to them. Not a feeling. Not an experience. He is everything. Even though they have never seen the manifestation of God's glory like the Jews saw. Yet he is their God. Nevertheless, they trust God 100% with the future of their boys and their own future. He is enough. He is enough. Let me ask you something. If you never saw God, if you never saw his glory in this life until you see God face to face when your heart beats for the last time, if you never saw God in this life, would he be enough for you? If he never answered another one of your prayers, never answered it, was, got, was just met with silence, would he be enough? If you never sensed his presence, never sensed it, like, I, don't, I don't even know if God's there anymore. I don't, I don't sense that. Would he be enough? You see, the reason the Jews blew it the reason for their epic failure was because they didn't trust Almighty God with all their heart. With all their heart. God's up on the mountain with Moses. We're going to wait because we have seen his glory. And we're going to wait. They didn't trust God with all their heart. You know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Or Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord, how? With all your heart. Will you circle that, underline that, highlight it? See, at the end of the day, if you don't trust God with all your heart, that he is God, then he'll never be enough. He'll never be enough. If you don't trust God with all your heart, that he will act in accordance with his, according to his will in your life, not your will, but according to his will, if you don't trust God with all your heart that he is fully in control of your single life, your married life, your widowed life, your divorced life, your busy life, if you don't trust him with all your heart, then he will never be enough. Never. And you will look elsewhere. You will look to that enough bar to see if there's something there that will fill the emptiness inside of you. You'll create your own God's whatever that might be. You look to the culture to see what it is you need to do that's lacking in your life. He'll never be enough. So write this one down. My relationship with God is based on trusting him with all my heart. Do you trust God with all your heart? I hope you will. Trust him with all your heart like the Rogers family is doing. And he'll be enough. Look to his word not to a feeling or an experience, and he will be enough. Jesus is that bar of enough. He is the enough bar. Not culture, not anything else. Run to him. Run to him. Let's close our time in prayer.
Father, what an amazing story. And a reminder to us that you are real, that you are glorious, that you are mighty. And yet, we may never see that until we see you. And surely we will one day. But God, help us not to be like the Jews who after all that they saw and after all that they experienced didn't think you were enough. God, we too have experienced you in many special ways. Maybe not by seeing the manifestation of your glory. But we know when the Holy Spirit came into our hearts to live, we know what it's like to walk with you and to live with you. We know we've experienced your touch and your blessings in so many ways. And yet, Father, so many times we just don't think that's enough. God, forgive me for all those times I've created my own little idols. And I've tried to work things out on my own and turn to my own power, my own devices because I didn't trust you. God, do work in us. God, do work in me that we would trust you with all of our hearts, that we would stop looking to culture. Instead, we would look to you and your word. For in you and in your word, we find our sufficiency. In Christ, we find our sufficiency. We find our everything. You are our everything. So thank you, Lord. We run to you. We need you. Bless us, God. Speak to us. Wrap your loving arms around us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.